Let me ask you a question. Who was the greatest prophet? In your estimation, who was the greatest prophet? Well, let me, let me ask you to do something. Turn to Ephesians, the fourth chapter, for just a moment. Well-known passage. <clears throat> Ephesians 4. Prophets run from major prophets to minor prophets, from Isaiah through... Who was the last one in the Old Covenant? Malachi. But Ephesians 4... Verse number 11 says, and he gave some, and when he says gave some, he's talking about, I think, just not before, but then, some as apostles and some as what? Prophets. And some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for service of, the work of service to building up of the body. And that's the body of Christ, which is the church. So we know that there's such a thing as New Testament prophets. Right? Uh, Agabus, for example, is mentioned specifically by name as being a prophet. Um, Philip, that's another interesting sort of thing. This morning we were talking about deacons and we were talking about linking mentorship and the heritage from one generation to the next. Philip was a what? One Philip was an apostle, but the Philip that we're talking about then in Acts was a deacon. And his daughters were what? Prophets. Some say prophetesses. I get hung up on all the S's, 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 S's. But, um, so we have New Testament prophets. And I would, you know, Joe, I don't know who the last New Testament prophet was. You know, in, in some respects, some people say today that we still have the gift of prophecy in terms of preaching and proclaiming. Um, <clears throat> But chronologically, if you look at New Testament figures and characters, I would probably say that John was the last prophet. That's my opinion. You know, He's the last of the apostles. Could you be an apostle and a prophet? Of course. And the, those that wrote Scripture, like Paul, uh, I think that he was being prophetic. So who was the greatest prophet? Who was the first prophet? Who was the first person in Scripture that was referred to as a prophet? I think, I believe we will discover it was Abraham. Uh, <clears throat> Moses, there will come a prophet like me in your midst, Deuteronomy says. Great prophet, great prophet. Who was the greatest of all prophets? Come on, help me, folks. Isaiah, I, Isaiah biggest book, first of the uh, uh, prophetic books, yeah. Any, any other takers? Hmm. Jesus was what? A prophet, a priest, and now what? King. The greatest prophet was Jesus. Yeah. Now, when you look at the others beside Jesus, you know, we have a lot of opinions, okay? Who's the evangelist, evangelistic prophet of the Old Testament? Isaiah. Yeah. So then that begs the question, who was the second greatest prophet? Well, who did Jesus say it was? There is no greater among men than who? Than John. And you might say that in his opinion, John was maybe the second greatest prophet. I don't know. We're not in a competition here. 
But sometimes we overlook the significance of John as a prophet and his role. Now, as Chris said, we've already gotten into the New Covenant with our um, uh, scarlet thread. We've looked at the birth of Jesus, and then we've looked at the visit of the Magi. But chronologically, then, the next thing that happens before the ministry of Jesus begins is tonight, then, John's ministry. So how do we know about the back, what do we know about the background of this? We go all the way back to the end of the Old Covenant, and we left it in which century? Ezra, Nehemiah, Nehemiah. Esther is kind of in between there. Nehemiah is what, 5th century. Nehemiah was the governor of Judah. He was sent by the king Artaxerxes in 444 to go back to Judah, and he was the governor there for about 12 years until 432. And then he returned to the Persian capital of Susa, don't know whether he planned to return or not. But in the meantime, uh, there was another prophet that was prophesying. He prophesied near the end of the time after the temple was built, and then he's the last of the canonical prophets. And that was, he called people to obedience to the law. And there was a reformation among the people. So we look at Malachi's message then as a message for reformation and also looking toward the coming of the new covenant. And so the two passages that are significant for tonight's message is from Malachi 3 and one from Malachi 4. In Malachi, the third chapter, in verse number one, if you want to turn there, this is probably about early 420s, high 420s, 429, 430, somewhere in there. And he says this in verse one, behold, I'm going to send my what? My messenger. And he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple. And that happened. And then in Malachi, the fourth chapter, the very end of the Old Covenant, the last two verses. Behold, I am going to send you who? Elijah. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, about whom Joel and other prophets had spoken. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And that's how the old covenant ended. And of course, we know that those are referred to, and we'll talk about it, the coming of the messenger who prepares the way, the one who Jesus identified as Elijah, the second greatest prophet, John. So what's happened in the meantime from the 5th century down then to the 1st century? We've covered this before in different uh, settings, but let me review it very quickly. Alexander then, within a couple of generations, then conquered Palestine, 331 B.C. And then when he died, his empire was broken up in the wars between the Diodaki and the first dynasty that ruled over Palestine after that was the Ptolemaic dynasty of, of Egypt from 331, then the death of Alexander the Great, down to 198. And then Another group of the Diadochi rulers out of then Syria, the Seleucid Empire. They rule from 198 then down to 142. And of course, near the beginning of that reign, we have the notorious action of Antiochus Epiphanes who desecrates the temple and it caused then a rebellion amongst the Jews. We call it the Maccabean Revolt. And from 166 down to 142, they fought against then the Seleucids. And finally then, the Maccabean family dynasty won that war and established the Hasmonean dynasty. And they ruled then from uh, 142 
down to the Roman conquest. And that was, of course, when uh, Pompey uh, defeated Jerusalem in 63 B.C. So all of that has happened in the meantime, dynasty after dynasty after dynasty. And now Herod the Great is ruling, client king of Rome from 40 B.C. down to about 4 B.C., during which time John was born and also Jesus was born. Another important ingredient in the background for today's story is the political parties and the religious party, rather religious parties in, in, uh, in Israel. And we've talked about these before. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Samaritans, and the Essenes, which may or may not have been part of the Qumran community. Remember the Pharisees drew their name from the word that means to purify, separatists, the uh, perosim. They had emerged in about the 2nd to 3rd century B.C., after the Babylonian captivity, they were very popular amongst the people. They basically taught in the synagogues, and of course, they were committed to a pure keeping of the law, developed the rabbinical code, believed in the resurrection, and had an elaborate angel angelology. Uh, about 6,000, they think, uh, Josephus tells us, there were about 6,000 Pharisees in Palestine, or in Judah, at the time of Christ. And then we have the Sadducees. They were the keepers of the temple, the aristocratic priestly sect, which were deistic in their view about God. They emphasized free will. They opposed pretty much everything about the Pharisees. They opposed the rabbinical code. You know, some people said that they didn't follow anything but the Torah. Uh, they held in high regard the rest of the Old Testament, but they didn't take any other extra-biblical rules and codes in addition to the Torah by which to live. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the angelology of the Pharisees. So you have those two groups that were strongly opposed to each other, very rarely agreed with each other about anything. Just listen to Paul's account when he stood before the Sanhedrin and threw out the issue of the resurrection in their midst. They fought like cats and dogs. And then we've got the uh, Samaritans, we know about them, the intermixture of the populace that was left in the northern part of Israel after the Assyrian conquest, then intermarried with those that then were imported there. They wanted to help rebuild the temple, and of course, uh, Zerubbabel refused to allow them to do so because they were intermarried with pagan mates, and that group continued with their temple on Mount Gerizim until the time of the Hasmonean dynasty. And that's the setting then at Jacob's well when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman right at the foot of that hill. And then we have the Essenes. The Essenes, a kind of monastic group that lived in its own community, believed in the coming of a teacher of righteousness. Their dietary code was probably pretty much vegetarian. They were ascetic, had no animal sacrifice. And they focused on the kingdom of God. Each one of these groups had a kind of eschatological end-time focus. For the Pharisees, it was the what? The resurrection. For the Sadducees, it was the keeping of the temple and all the ritual sacrifices. For the Essenes, it was the coming of a teacher of righteousness, and the closest probably parallel to that was then eventually Jesus. And then the Samaritans, they looked for whom? The coming of a prophet like Moses. So that's the background, and it does have something to do with what we're talking about tonight. Because when 
when John was baptizing, he looked out there and he rebuked specifically and especially whom? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. But they all had something in common. They all believed that salvation came by the name. Salvation came by the name of whom? Abraham. Children of Abraham. If you were part of the covenant, uh, corporate covenant community, the Abrahamic covenant community, then you were safe and saved. Um, we're children of Abraham. Um, Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes, all of them. And, and the Samaritans traced their lineage back to Abraham as well. And God had promised that they would be his elect. And even though the Sadducees didn't believe in a life after death, no afterlife, no resurrection, they still consider themselves to be children of Abraham in this covenant community. And as long as one obeyed the law, God would favor them, and they were part of the elect. It has a technical term that scholars use. It's called covenantal nomism. You put those two things together. They were in the covenant by the noma, the, the nomen, the name of whom? Abraham. And that was their hope in salvation. And that's important to the story today. So what about John the Baptist? We go to Luke, the first chapter. And see, I know that the passage tonight is Luke, the third chapter, but to see the background of, of John the Baptist, we look at Luke, the first chapter, and his dad's name was Zacharias, or alternatively, Zechariah. He was a country priest from the hill country, somewhere just outside of Jerusalem. And he was of the division, Luke tells us, the historian was very precise about this, he was of the division of priests of Abijah. Now, there were four, 24 courses of priests, 24 divisions of priests. Some of them had as few as four families. Some has had as many as nine families. 24 courses over 12 months, four weeks a month, 48 then times of service. So you divide that into the, the uh, weeks of the year. 24 courses, each course or division did two weeks of service at the temple, not at the same time. And of course, Zechariah, or Zacharias, his name means Yahweh remembers, was chosen by Lot to go and to do the burning of the incense at the beginning of the service. His mother's name, Elizabeth. They were both elderly. They were advanced in age, Luke tells us. Elizabeth's name, we're not sure exactly the etymology of that. We think it's probably God has sworn, or maybe God is my fortune. She also was a descendant of priestly stock. Luke tells us that she was a descendant of Aaron. And then, of course, in the first chapter, verses 13 through 17, we don't know who the angel is at first. Later in the passage, we discover it is Gabriel. An angel comes to Zechariah as he's then in the course of doing his burning the incense, and he gives him a promise. And then when Zechariah says, you know, how do I know this promise is going to happen? Then the angel says, listen here, buddy. I'm who? I'm Gabriel. I'm Gabriel who then stands in the sight of God. <laughs> you better listen to me. <laughs> and because you have doubted, you're not going to be able to speak again until your son is born. What does he promise? Elizabeth in her advanced age is going to give birth, and you will name him John. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. 
not just after birth, but from the womb. And we know that later is uh, indicated by the way that he jumped in the womb when he heard the voice of Mary. And he will turn Israel back to the Lord. In Luke, the first chapter, verse number 27, you see a connection then with what Malachi said already in the words then of the angel. It is he who will go as a forerunner, verse 27. Actually, these are the words of, of Zechariah. Before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So you see the two references there to the passages we talked about in Malachi. He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. So as to what? Make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So a forerunner, a messenger, who is going to prepare the way of the Lord in the hearts of the people. So John's birth. We're told later that six months later then is when uh, Mary then has a similar message about the coming of the Messiah, that she's going to give birth to Jesus. And then she immediately goes to Elizabeth's home. So, and, and Elizabeth was already expecting. So we think that John was about six months older than Jesus, born during the reign of Herod. He died in 4 B.C. So we think that he was born somewhere between 5 to 7 B.C. or so. And his father prophesied after his tongue was loosened and opened up. He says this in Luke, the first chapter. It's interesting in that passage. You know, he, he can't speak, and they say, what shall we name him? And they think that they're going to name him after his dad. And who says no? Elizabeth. Elizabeth says, no, I, I don't know how Zechariah had communicated this to her. He must have known some sign language or whatever, or he wrote it in the dirt. But she knows he's supposed to be named John. She says, no, he's going to be John. And everybody's astounded at this. And then his tongue is loosed. And in verses 76 and 77, we have this then prophecy from him. And he had confirmed his name would be John. And he says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. So once again, a fulfillment of the prophecy. To give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Now it's interesting, to give people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. Does it say here that, it, that the Elijah, that John the Baptist is going to do the forgiving of sin? No. So what's John's identity and mission? It's very clear. He's Elijah, Malachi 4.5. Gabriel said it, that John would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Jesus later said it, that he was the greatest of all the men, and I take that prophets. And he identified him in Matthew 11th chapter specifically as Elijah. Now when he's coming down from the mountain, from the transfiguration, he talks about Elijah already having come. And it's not clear there that he's speaking about John. But already in Matthew the 11th chapter before this, he has identified John to his disciples as Elijah. Matthew eleven fourteen, And if you're willing to accept it, he says to his disciples and also to those others that are listening, he says, John himself is Elijah. You can't be any more specific than that. Who was to come, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he's a messenger. So he's not only Elijah, he's a messenger of Malachi 3, 1. Gabriel has said this. Gabriel has said he will be the forerunner before the Lord. Zechariah then prophesied that John would go before the Lord. His dad said this. And Mark, at the beginning of his gospel, when he begins the gospel of Jesus Christ, he quotes, 
He then inserts this at the beginning of his introduction of uh, John the Baptist. Behold, I send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. That's not found in the Matthew account. So he's Elijah, he's the messenger, and his job as a messenger is to do what? To be the herald, to proclaim the news, to prepare the way. And we come to our passage tonight. Isaiah 43 is quoted in Luke 3. So let's take a look at this passage. Uh, Luke 3, 1 through 12. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah, the prophet, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, this is Isaiah 43, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There are a couple of parallel passages to this. It's obvious they're in the synoptics. This is Matthew. Mark has a similar passage in Mark, the first chapter, the very beginning, first eight verses. And then, of course, uh, uh, I I said Luke earlier. I meant to turn to... uh, uh, No, uh, Matthew then also has a, a... a passage as well. Uh, what I just read, in fact, was from from uh, from uh, yeah Luke. Okay, so there are two parallel passages, and in this, there's a threefold message: repent. For what reason? The kingdom of God is at hand. Prove something. Prove what? You're confessing. And you're repenting, but prove that your repentance is what? It is genuine. And then beware, finally, that both salvation and judgment are coming. So take a look at this passage. The first six verses, I would say, have to do with John preparing the way. He is a messenger that comes to prepare the way. And then, secondly, verses 7 through 10, John holds them accountable And then finally, John serves the mighty one. So let's take a look at those three sections. First of all, John prepares the way. His message is urgent. In the first two verses, listen to the urgency. Now John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying what? Repent. For what reason? 
the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When was this happening? About? If we're going to give it a date. How do we know? In the passage that we read, I think I told you to turn to Luke. (laughs) Uh, That wasn't the right passage I was reading out of Matthew. The Luke passage gives us an exact dating. At the beginning of that passage, it says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod, the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, the tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, that was the tetrarch of... This is the historian speaking, isn't it? So when, when was this? Well, the fifteenth year of Tiberius, he began a co-regency with Augustus, probably about 12 A.D. He didn't become emperor until 14 A.D. But about 12 A.D. is probably the point at which Luke is dating it. And if you add 15 years to that, this would make this about 27 B.C. or so that John is starting his ministry. And right after that, then Jesus comes as well. Uh, This is about 30 years or so after the end of chapter 2 of Matthew. So when he says in those days, is he talking about in those days when Jesus was a baby? No, no. There's a gap of about 30 years in there. I think what he's saying in in those, at that time, at this significant time that I'm about to take you to, this is what was happening. John the Baptist then came preaching. He was the baptizer. This is Matthew's key term for John throughout most of his accounts. He mentions him as the baptizer seven times. It's not the Baptist as a noun. You know, we we call ourselves Baptist and we joke sometimes and say, well, the first church was a Baptist church because you know how the joke goes. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan. But it's not that kind of noun. It's actually a verbal word. It's a participle. John the baptizer. What this does is it focuses on his activity. It's not just a descriptive noun. It talks about what he was doing, about his action. He was baptizing to do what? Symbolize something. To symbolize what the people had done. What had the people done? They'd confessed. They had repented. And he came. This doesn't mean that he just sauntered in. It doesn't mean, well, here he comes. It literally means he appeared. It's a different word than the normal word for common in Greek. He appeared. It's like he burst on the scene. And at this point, we have the beginning of what? The gospel. With John the Baptist, we have the beginning of the gospel being proclaimed. Now, I know we have it embedded in what Isaiah was saying, but here we have an explicit beginning of the gospel. The reason we know that is because when we look later at the accounts of the apostles, they date the beginning of the gospel from the ministry of John. When you look at Acts, the, uh, the first chapter, it says, from the baptizing of John with Jesus, you see this begins. And, and later, Peter, when he talks about the gospel account, he says, from the ministry and the time of John forward all the way through to the time of Jesus' ascension. You see how the proclamation of the gospel. So what's happening here is John is launching the gospel message. Not in its entirety, but he's beginning it. And he came preaching. Now, Mark and Luke add to this. Matthew just says that he was preaching. Mark and Luke said that he was preaching what? A baptism of what? Repentance for what? For the forgiveness of sins. 
It points to that, but it doesn't accomplish it. And that's an important distinction to make. Baptizing, preaching, preaching of baptism, preaching of baptism, what kind of baptism? A water baptism of repentance toward the forgiveness of sin. And he's doing this in the wilderness of Judea. Where was this? Lower Jordan Valley, east of Jerusalem, the plateau that overlooks then uh, the Dead Sea there. And then beyond the Dead Sea into the region that we would call the Transjordan, into Perea. Later, Jesus retreated into this region in John the 10th chapter. It says that he went to where John originally was baptizing. And it says that he went to Bethany beyond the Jordan. There was more than one Bethany. There was a Bethany near Jerusalem, and there's this Bethany that's on the other side of the Jordan. Exactly where it was, we don't know. Probably somewhere in the vicinity of where Sodom and Gomorrah had, had been. The uniqueness of John being in the wilderness is this, I think. Most of the other prophets in the Old Testament came to the people. Most of the time they were in the cities. They were in the populated areas. They came to the people and people listened to them. Not all of them, but most of them. And John is out in the wilderness. He stayed there and the people did what? They flocked to him. Now, what's the significance about the wilderness? Well, it's a place of hmm, maybe contemplation, growth, silence. Do we know of somebody that we mentioned this morning that retreated to the wilderness, we think, for three years after he had been saved by the Lord on the way to Damascus? Paul, yeah. Uh, we don't know that he was by himself that whole time. We know that he was preaching in synagogues, but he was in the wilderness, a place of maybe growth and contemplation, growing in the Lord. The wilderness is a place of temptation. Who was tempted in the wilderness? Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. The wilderness can be a place of refuge. Who took refuge when he fled from Jezebel out into the wilderness? None other than John the Baptist's predecessor, Elijah. It's a barren land, a barren and quiet land fit for a message of judgment, especially if it was probably somewhere in the vicinity of the Dead Sea around Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's certainly symbolic of a need to repent. You know, it's in the wilderness then, of course, that God took Israel originally. And it is there where they met the I am and where he gave them the law. And then they entered Canaan from that. So there might be something symbolic about the people going out into the wilderness, confessing their sin there, and then coming back in to live, if you will, new and repentant lives. He says this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the core message of Jesus in the synoptics in the gospel. It, it's identical with what Jesus said. And then he went in after John the Baptist was put into prison. It says he went into Galilee preaching the good news of God. What did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And believe the good news. Uh, it's what the disciples preached. When he, when he sent them out in Matthew the 10th chapter, what did he say? Go out and preach this message. And they did. They preached repentance. And the word, as we've already said before, is very graphic. It means to turn around. It doesn't mean just to make confession. But in the Greek language, in the pagan society, it was a value-neutral term. To repent could mean this. You, you turn around. Maybe you were headed toward that which is good, and you turn around and you start be, being bad. <laughs> 
Or maybe you were being bad and you turn around and you head the other direction, you were being good. It, but it was value neutral. It, it had to do with the turning, one way or the other. In the Judeo-Christian context, it always has a value associated with it. It always has an ethical context to it, a spiritual value, moral accountability associated with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And it always has to do with doing what? Abandoning the old way, which is bad, being transformed, turning direction, and then adopting the new way, exchanging it for a new way. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, this was one of Jesus' most important teachings, of course. Uh, 32 times in the, in the uh, book of Matthew in, in his gospel account. He mentions the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes he mentions the kingdom of God about five more times, almost 40 times, and they're probably interchangeable. But this is one of Jesus' main teachings, according to Matthew. And it means more than a place. The kingdom of God, if we speak about the kingdom of this country or the kingdom of that country today, we, we think in terms of realm, we think in, in terms of ge geography and, and, and populace and population. But here, of course, the kingdom of heaven is about sovereignty. It, it's not about a realm, it's about a reign. It's about a rule. It's not about something that exists, it's about something that happens. You see, the kingdom of God is occurring. It's changing things. And at this time, even though in the Old Testament they spoke about God's sovereignty in the, in the affairs of all nations and all men, they never really identified it as such like this, the kingdom of heaven. This is a new concept. A new concept that John is proclaiming and that Jesus is proclaiming, and it has to do with the Messiah coming and eventually then reigning from heaven upon earth, which is occurring today. And he says what? The kingdom is at hand. It's imminent. And he uses the perfect tense here. It literally means the kingdom has come near. And this is what Jesus means. It is upon you. And this is different from the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets were talking about the transformation of society through the repentance and confession of people. But the kingdom of God was distant and far. Now it is upon us. It is imminent. It is coming. It is here. God keeps his promise in verses 3 and 4. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the desert or in the wilderness, Make greater the way for the Lord, make his path straight. And then it describes John. Isaiah's prophecy then here in Isaiah 43 speaks about the voice in the wilderness, not in the busy suburbs of the city, but in a deserted and lonely land. Highlights the prophetic image of this lone figure out in the wilderness that people go to. Something like Moses meeting God in the wilderness. It, it reminds us of God making his covenant with Israel to begin with in the desert. And now he is calling his people to become, come out and become reacquainted with what that covenant is really about. It's not about being children of Abraham. It is meeting Jehovah. It is meeting the I Am as Israel had met him in the wilderness. And then he, said, he is to make ready the way for the Lord, make his path straight. You know, in the Orient, there was an oriental custom when the king would then leave his palace and go out to whatever town or village, he would send out forerunners ahead of him to do what? To level the ground, to level the road, to make it smooth for his arrival. This conjures up in our mind the image of the Lord coming into Jerusalem and the road being made fit and perfect for his travel. And then John is the one who does this. 
He precedes Jesus, we see, in verses 11 and 12. Before he finishes this message, he introduces the one that is going to come after him. He's acting then as Elijah. In this, there's an undercurrent of tension, not just urgency, but you get the feeling in his proclaiming this that he's calling the people already to some kind of personal readiness. You need to be prepared, for he is coming. And we're going to find out later in the message, he's not only coming to save, he's coming to do what else? To judge. And there is this undercurrent in the message. And then we have the description of John. It says that John himself had a garment of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist, and he ate what? Locusts and wild honey. You know, the striking habits of John, like an ascetic, almost like a monk out in the desert, (laughs) simple clothing, he just looks like a prophetic figure. Uh, He looks like Elijah. Second Kings tells us about, describes Elijah. He was a what? He was a hairy man. Well, uh, John's wearing what? Hairy coat. And he had a leather girdle around his loins. So he's not just Elijah, if you will, in, in name, but he's also, he casts this kind of figure. Uh, Jesus later, when, you know, John's disciples come to him and ask him on behalf of John, are you the expected one? Then he looks at him and he said, what did you expect? What did y'all go out to see in the desert? You didn't go out to see a guy dressed in soft clothing. Soft clothing is clothing that is designed for people that live in what? Palaces. He said, no. You went out to see this guy in the, in the camel's hair. The camel's hair kind of clothing that is worn even today by the simple Bedouin shepherds in the Middle East. And he has self-sufficient diet. You stop and think about it. This, this locusts, they were the only clean winged insect that's listed in the law as clean enough to eat. And today, even now, some of the poor in the Middle East still roast locusts and eat them as a source of uh, nutrition and food. Wild honey wasn't kept by the beekeepers. This was a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. He was self-sufficient. He was like a Nazarite. We're told earlier that he would drink no what? No liquor and no wine. So you have this ascetic prophetic figure out in the wilderness. And then there's a great revival in verses 5 and 6. Then Jerusalem, and Mark tells us all Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and the district around the Jordan, and he was baptizing uh, them in the Jordan River, and they confessed their sins. You have here a revival of surging popularity. All of Jerusalem goes out to him, the Transjordan. Josephus later records that he was wildly popular and that he was a great religious influence. And you have a broad mix of people that come to him. We see here the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We also, from later accounts, there were tax collectors and prostitutes. There were chief priests and elders. Because later, Jesus, in the 21st chapter of Matthew, is talking to the chief priests and the elders. And he reminds them that they were there. And we know the Pharisees and the Sadducees were there. And Jesus says this, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of heaven before you. (laughs) For John came to you, that is, scribes, and, and uh, elders, by the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they believed him. And, and you seeing this did not even feel remorse afterward because you didn't believe. So it was a wide collection of people 
and there was quite a turnaround. A few years before the birth of Jesus, when uh, the wise men came to Jerusalem and Herod had all these questions, Jerusalem wasn't particularly excited about the coming of a new king. It said that all of Jerusalem was troubled by this. But now the forerunner for the Messiah is in the desert, and they flocked to him. So there, you see there's a turnaround here. There's a beginning of a revival, and they were baptized when they confessed their sins. Well, what does this baptism mean? There was proselyte baptism. Proselyte baptism was when somebody chose to become a, a, a Jew, part of the covenant community, but it was self-administered baptism in, in the presence of witnesses. There was also Qumran baptism. There were the ritual ablutions of this ascetic community, but, and they were self-administered, but they were time and time and time again regularly. John's baptism is distinctive. It was administered by John himself, and it was for anyone who came. And it was a one-time act of baptizo, plunging beneath the water completely to signify what? A complete change of life, a one-time event. It wasn't a superficial act that was condemned by prophets like Amos and Hosea and Zechariah. It wasn't something superficial. It was a genuine change of identity. Not to join the covenant community. Not to become children of Abraham. You see, the sting in this message was this. There were people that considered themselves to be part of the kingdom of God already because they were children of Abraham. And what is John telling them to do? He's telling them to repent and to give to signify that through this act of baptism. They shouldn't have to be baptized. We're children of Abraham. And then in verses 7 through 10, Joel, John holds them accountable. They had wrong hearts and wrong motives. In verse 7, he looks at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he says, You brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the coming wrath? When he uses that snake metaphor, it's pretty profound. Because, of course, snakes were poisonous. They were deceptive. The small snakes that John had seen in the wilderness... Often, lying still, they look like, like sticks on, the, on the, the, the floor of the desert until you approached them and they bit you and latched onto you like they did out of the fire with, with Paul. I think there's an analogy here, too. Who is the great deceiver who came into the Garden of Eden as a serpent? Satan. And Jesus identifies some of these later just as such. I don't think it's a mistake that John is using this, or a coincidence that John is using the serpent metaphor. Because Jesus then looks at the Jews that will not believe him, and he calls them not children of Abraham, but children of their father, who is the father of lies, children of Satan. So why the, sp the special focus on the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They probably didn't come to repent. They probably came to spy and report on John. And they opposed each other usually in every other context, but here we see them... Matthew identifies them as a common group with only one definite article, the Pharisees and Sadducees, not the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This group that opposed each other usually occasionally came together. And in the New Testament, the times that we see them coming together were to oppose Jesus. Later in the 16th chapter of Matthew, it is the Pharisees and the Sadducees that ask him for a sign. And Jesus says, you're an adulterous and evil generation asking for a sign. In Matthew 22, they don't do it together, but they, they play tag team. First, it's the Pharisees and the Herodians then that ask him about the, 
the tax that they are paying, should they give tax to Caesar. And then immediately on the heels of that, it's almost like in a wrestling ring, then the, the Sadducees come in and ask him the question about the resurrection related to the woman who had been married to several brothers. Jesus uses similar language to this than when he talks to the Pharisees. In Matthew, the 12th chapter and the 23rd chapter, he looks at the Pharisees and he says, you are what? You're like a brood of serpents. You see, their objective was to flee God's wrath. Well, what's wrong with that? They actually weren't going toward God. They weren't seeking the face of God. They were doing what? They were running from God. They weren't really being held accountable for their sin in the face of God. They were doing everything that they could to save their skin. Like the desert snakes, when the fire swept across the floor of the desert, the snakes would scatter and seek their holes. This is exactly what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing. Now what's interesting about it is, <laughs> Luke's account says that John didn't say that just to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He said it to all of those who were attending. And then he says, prove your repentance is genuine. Therefore, bear the fruit of true repentance. You see, John's kind of repentance is more than confessing with the mouth. It's more than changing one's mind. And it's more than just something superficial. It is a fundamental change of direction. A change of behavior. You see, John prepares the way for what's coming later. John preaches a baptism of repentance toward the forgiveness of sin. Who is it that comes then and provides the forgiveness of sin? It is Jesus. And then he says, bear, bear fruit that, that uh, is uh, consequential to, to repentance. What does that mean? Well, you notice he doesn't say here, bear fruits. He uses a singular. So he's not talking about a list of legalistic rules to follow. He's not talking about the rabbinical code. He's not talking about rule keeping here. He's talking about bare fruit. What is the singular fruit that he's looking for? A holy, changed, singular life that is committed to God. You see, he talks about good fruit and bad fruit. Who else talked about good fruit and bad fruit? Jesus did this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus emphasized this fact when he said, you're going to be one or the other. You're either going to be good trees or bad trees. You're going to bear good fruit or bad fruit. He does this in the parable of the sower. There's a different kind of soil, and it, it bore a different kind of fruit, no fruit or some kind of fruit. He does this in, the, in his parable of the vine. You're either in the vine or you're not on the vine. You're either bearing fruit or you're not. So with both John and with Jesus, it's a matter of holy, your life is a fruit-bearing life, or it is not. And then when you look at the Lucan account, Luke adds some evidence here. How do we know whether or not we're bearing fruit of repentance? You see, when John was preaching then in Luke's account, there were three groups that asked him this question. Then what shall we do? So the first was the crowd. What shall we do? What do you mean by bearing fruit of repentance? What shall we do then? And what does he say to the crowd? He says, well, you know... If you have a tunic, if you have an extra tunic, and you know somebody that needs one, do what? Give it to them. And likewise with food. If you have food and somebody doesn't have food, give it to them. Who does this sound like? Sounds like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, preparing the way. And, and, and then the tax collectors, they say, what shall we do to show evidence of our repentance? And he looks at them and he says, 
I don't know if Matthew was in that group or not. That's an interesting question. He says what? Don't collect more than you were ordered to collect. Don't extort the people. Ethical application of the fruit of repentance. And then there were some soldiers in the crowd. They said, what shall we then do? And he says what? Don't take money from people by force and accuse no one falsely. And and by the way, be content with your wages. So you see, he put feet to this. He gave practical illustrations. A change of life in the crowd with the tax collectors and with the soldiers. And then he said this. You know, it's not about being children of Abraham. Don't presume, don't suppose to yourselves that we can say that I'm a child of Abraham. Don't you know that God can use these stones to raise up children unto Abraham? And we know this goes back to the covenantal nomism. If you were born of a Jewish mother, then you were considered a Jew and a part of the covenant, and that was the necessary condition of salvation. And maintaining your position and status in that covenant community was then that which then saved you. Or you could come into the covenant community by then confessing Jehovah as God, being baptized, proselyte baptism, and offering a gift at the temple. Children of Abraham. What John says is this is a presumptuous attitude. Don't you dare suppose that. Don't you presume that is what he's saying. It's not a matter of birthright. Now what John was not doing, he was not downgrading the covenant. He was not downgrading the significance of what God had done in the desert with the Israelites. He's still their covenant God, yes. But don't presume just because you're born, flesh and blood, a descendant of Abraham, that you're saved. It's not about Abrahamic descent. It's not about the name of Abraham. And as we will see later, it's going to be about the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what he was saying was this, I think. You have a sense of privilege, and it's misplaced. That birth does not make you immune to God's wrath. Jesus had done the same thing. In John the 8th chapter and in Matthew the 8th chapter, he rebukes those that have this attitude that if they're children of Abraham, they're saved. Paul does it in Romans 9. He said they presumed this, but it was not accurate. And then he uses a play on words between stones and children when he refers to Abraham in the original language. Based on Isaiah 51, 1 through 2. Abraham, in that passage, is described as the rock from which you are hewn. And the idea here is, when John says this, just as God did the impossible with barren, what was Abraham's wife's name? Sarah. And just as he did the impossible with a 99-year-old man, and he bore fruit, he can do the same thing if he wants to out of a cold, dead stone. In other words, what he was saying was this. God's not interested in your family tree. God's interested in what? Trees that bear fruit. So what's it going to be? You see, the judgment is imminent. The axe is already at the root. That's pretty imminent. The axe is already in the hand. And the consequence of not bearing fruit is that the tree will be cut down. It's already being laid. And the verbs that are used in this verb here, the axe is already laid. It's a present tense verb. It is being laid to the root. Therefore, every tree that is not bearing fruit, present tense, is being, present tense, cut down and is being thrown into the fire. It is imminent. And of course, the severing of the root takes away not just the nourishment, but uproots the tree. Jesus says essentially the same thing at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. 
He says, you're either good fruit or you're bad fruit. You're either a good tree or a bad tree. And he's talking about false prophets there. Bad trees bear bad fruit. Thrown into the fire, of course, is a universal sign of judgment. And Jesus repeated this when he talked about the parable of the, the tares and the wheat. He said, what? You see tares growing up in the field in the wheat? Don't rip them up. Let them grow until the harvest time comes. And when the harvest time comes, what will happen? Then the tares will be pulled out. We will know who are the tares. We will know who is the wheat. And what will happen to the tares? They will be thrown into the what? Into the fire. Last of all, John serves the mighty one in verses 11 through 12. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John knew his place. The one that comes after me is more powerful than I. Spiritually stronger. His baptism is more effective. And he is greater in character than I. You know, Isaiah had prophesied this strength in Isaiah the 11th chapter. The Messiah that is going to come, he will have the spirit of counsel and strength. Isaiah 53. He will share the spoil of the strong. He is stronger than John the Baptist. John the Baptist wasn't fit to unlatch his sandals or to carry his sandals, depending on which gospel account you read. This is interesting. Disciples of a rabbi, disciples of a teacher, were required to do everything for their teacher, anything the teacher asked except one thing. And what was that? To unlatch or to remove and to carry the sandals. That was the job of whom? Not a disciple, but of whom? A slave. So, wow, what is John saying? I'm not only not fit to be his disciple, I'm not even fit to be a slave in his presence. I'm not fit. He knew his place. He knew his role. And, of course, at the end of the account in John 3, when his disciples come to him and they're jealous because Jesus has more people coming to him than John, he says what? He must increase and I must decrease. John knew his, his role and he never complained about it. And then he talks about three baptisms. Baptism of water for what? Repentance. Toward forgiveness, but it doesn't forgive. And the Messiah is going to come and he's going to baptize with what? The Spirit. Well, that's pretty obvious what that means. You know, Isaiah eleven two says that the Messiah is going to come endowed with the Spirit and the capacity to then give that Spirit. And we know that that's what happened at Pentecost. You see, this baptism of the Spirit isn't just about repentance, it's about forgiveness. It's about the conveying of righteousness. And then we come to the controversial part, the baptism of fire. Some people think, well, it's the baptism of spirit and the fire. Well, that could be. Because at Pentecost, what happened? The spirit came and you have tongues of what? Fire. So it could be an empowering kind of fire here that's being spoken about. I think John is purposely vague here. Hmm. It could be the refining fire of trials. First Peter tells us that our faith is like gold that is tried by what? Fire. I think in the context of this passage, it's clearly one thing that he means. It's the fire of judgment. Those that are unrepentant are going to suffer everlasting fire, Revelation 20. And he talks about that in a moment. It could have to do with what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3. We're all going to go through the fire that is going to do what? Purge our works. And some are going to have works that are hay and stubble and they're going to be burned away. And I like this picture. 
they're going to get into the kingdom with their coattails singed. Mm -hmm. I think really the idea, the focus here, though, is on judgment. Because when you look at verse 12, he says what in closing? His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There's no question that this is about judgment. Fire is a theme of Matthew's gospel. Twelve times he mentions it. Verse 10, the tree that doesn't bear fruit will be destroyed by fire. And he's mentioned it again in verse 11. Here it's clearly for judgment. The threshing floor is filled with this grain that has chaff on it. The oxen treads on the, on the grain, separates the grain from the chaff. They take the winnowing fork, throw it up into the air. And if there's a breeze coming through there, if it's on the outside, it blows away the chaff. And then, of course, that which is good, the repentant, are gathered into the kingdom, and the chaff is blown away, and it is burned by an asbestos fire. Wait, that's contradictory. Asbestos resists fire. The idea here is it is something that can never be burned up completely. A fire that is un, what? unquenchable. Judgment is imminent. His winnowing fork is in his hand, people, he says to those gathered around him. And there are two possible destinies. Either you're a good tree, repentant, bearing fruit, or you're a bad tree, unrepentant destined to be cast into the fire. And of course, Jesus talks about this in the parable of the wheat and tares. So let me make a couple of observations in closing. What's the rest of the story about John? We know what it was. John then baptized Jesus for what purpose? He said, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Jesus said, it's necessary to do this for what reason? To fulfill all righteousness. You see, I am coming to fulfill the righteousness. I'm going to give the baptism of the Spirit that is going to bring righteousness and forgiveness. And then he bore witness. He said, and I saw the Spirit descend upon him and remain, and therefore I'm telling you he is the what? He proclaims, this is the Son of God. When his disciples came to him and they were jealous, we've already said this. He said, no. He said, I'm going to take a back seat. He must increase. I must decrease. Then he sent his disciples to Jesus when he had doubts. Are you really the expected one? And Jesus said, First, he complimented John, and then he said, if you want to know if I am, look at what? Look at the things that I do. Look at the miracles. And he, he, he commended John as the greatest of all men. We know he was executed by Herod Antipas because he had been living, married with his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. So he was executed, beheaded, and his disciples buried him as Jesus' disciples buried Jesus. Jesus affirmed John's authority was from heaven when he stood in the temple and he was asked about his authority. He said, well, let me ask you a question. John's authority, did it come from heaven or from men? They couldn't answer the question, but the implication of the question is what? The answer is his authority came from heaven. And his disciples continued after the beginning of the New Testament church. There continue to be disciples of John even after the ascension of Jesus. How do we know that? When Paul comes to which city? In Acts the 19th chapter. There were 12 of them there. 12 disciples of John, and he asked them, have you heard about then the baptism of the Spirit? They said, no. (laughs) You see, they're still going along with baptism of repentance. Which city was it? Ephesus. And then they were converted, and then they accepted the gospel. So tracing the scarlet thread... We see that John was what? He was the messenger of Malachi 3. He was the Elijah 
of Malachi 4. He was the voice of the wilderness, calling in the wilderness, make, way that, make straight the way of the Lord from Isaiah 40. Some of the disciples then also formed the core of Jesus' disciple group. So we know in John, the first chapter, Peter had been following along with another one. We don't know his name, but it was probably John. And he goes and he gets Andrew. And then Jesus goes to Philip and he says, follow me. And then Philip goes and gets Nathaniel. So you see those at least become part of the core group of Jesus' disciples. We know this. His water baptism of repentance was a precursor for Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit that brings righteousness and forgiveness. And his baptism of repentance was completed by Jesus. It's interesting, today, we still continue in the tradition of John the Baptist because we do what? We symbolize the baptism of the Holy Spirit that has already occurred in a believer's life where they've been transformed and forgiven by the righteousness of his blood poured out for the ransom of many. We symbolize that today by the what kind of baptism? The baptizo, baptizo, water baptism of immersion that John himself had been practicing in view of that. So we, the, we see the scarlet thread running through John the Baptist to what we do today to acknowledge the forgiveness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist as the forerunner and the messenger and the Elijah that prepared the way for your son Jesus Christ to come. We thank you that we are inheritors of that tradition, that we honor the Lord today because he then, in his last days on earth, told us that we ought to do what John did for disciples who follow you to symbolize our surrender to you. Go you therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost. And for this we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.